Who are you? story for some of you it's pretty well known but you know they graduated from Stanford in 1934 uh, and then they left the area um, they had a professor Fred Terman right very famous around here Father Silicon Valley you know all this um, wanted to build up the electronics industry in this area there were only five or six very small companies here and, and from what I understand you you may have seen the locations of some of those over the weekend I'm not sure but Federal Telegraph was here Charlie Litton was here, General, General Radio was here, Philo Farnsworth was up in the city, right, inventing television. But really no place for someone here to get a job, and so he, um, he encouraged his students to start their own companies. He, he did something that's very common now, but he would take his students on tours of, of local companies. Stanford then um, had a professional bent, which was unusual for universities, you know, like Harvard or something like that, but they they were more interested in sort of uh, real-world professional stuff. So he would take them on tours of these companies and say, you know, look at these people who started these companies. Most of them don't have a college degree. Certainly with a Stanford degree, you know, you can start your own company in it. And I think he saw something in Hewlett and Packard, too. They started very early on talking about starting their own company. They became friends in college. Um, and by their junior year, we're talking about, you know, sort of taking Terman up on, on his idea. But when they graduated, middle of the Depression, um, Pecker got an offer from General Electric. Only 12 people were in that, what they called sort of their recruiting class. And so he went. He went back to Schenectady, New York, and, and took that job to get some experience. Um, but kept in touch with Terman. Uh, they wrote letters back and forth. Bill, meanwhile, uh, went to MIT. So they were actually kind of close to each other on the East Coast, and they would take trips together, go on canoe trips. He's not the youngest visitor we've ever had. <laughs> but he's close. <laughs> so don't worry about that. It's nice to have kids here. Um, so anyway, kept in touch, and, and for example, you were asking me about, you know, Stanford. So Stanford has the letters Terman wrote to them while they were gone, things like that, you know. Um, anyway, uh, Terman kind of lured them back. Uh, after he graduated from MIT, uh, Hewlett came back to Stanford. He really, he only had one job offer, you know. He was not a, a stellar student. Um, typical sort of brilliant person, not the best student. <laughs> so he came back here 
uh, Terman arranged for him to have a research fellowship at the lab, and that's when he started fooling around with something called an audio oscillator, and, um, and which later became our first product. I'll tell you some more about that. So then Terman says to Hewlett, um, do you think we could get Dave back here if I arranged a fellowship for him too? And both said, sure. And so Terman got another 500 bucks for Packard to come back and work on tubes. And actually what he was doing was working with the Varian brothers on, um, <coughs> you know, the Klystron tube and stuff like that. So, uh, Which was developed right around the corner. Right. Isn't it? Yeah, and, the, and Varian's parents lived right over here. Wow. So really, if you, you know, as you can see, we're part of this neighborhood, and, and if you use your imagination, you kind of see them running back and forth. And so, Peck, so, Terman kind of lures them back here, and Packard takes a year's leave of absence, uh, and they uh, they wrote letters back and forth. And Hewlett then went out looking for an apartment, a place for them to live. Uh, Packard was married by them, and we actually have a letter in the archives that Hewlett wrote to Packard saying, "I found the greatest place." Uh, there's uh, an apartment for you and Lucille, there's a shed out back where I can live, and the lady's going to let us use the garage for a workshop. So they rented this property, you know, which at the time was student housing in this neighborhood. This is called Professorville, specifically because of the garage. Um, and it was even included in the rent, like $12 of the rent went for the garage with they split. <laughs> so uh, September of 38, Pecker drives back cross country with his new bride and with the drill press in the rumble seat of his Chevy. Just imagine how understanding Lucille was. She didn't know what she was getting into. <laughs> they dragged this thing back across. He brought a bunch of equipment um, that you know he had acquired at GE back with him. And they moved in and they started trying to figure out what to do. So HP's kind of famous for starting a company without knowing what their first product was going to be. And our business plan is... That's very cool. Yeah, it's almost like <laughs> the idea of the company was, was the company. You know yeah. what I mean? We have their original business plan, and it's actually been used in Stanford, um, I'm told. Jim Collins uh, says in his book that... Yeah, they'll tell us how he used to read the business plan aloud to the class and then ask them to guess which company it is, and everybody's like, oh my god, you know, they couldn't have been successful, it's the worst business plan, they don't even know what their product is, and it's Hewlett Packard's business. Yeah, it's exactly the opposite yeah. today. You know, today everybody starts with a product, and yeah. they can't know. build a company. Twitter just got funded. <laughs> <laughs> so they um, they started uh, again with a lot of guidance by Terman, and they were always very careful to give him credit for being such an influence and such a mentor for them. But they uh, they came back; they were working working in the lab, you know, for him. They were taking classes. Lucille. Um, got her old job back working as a secretary. She was also a Stanford graduate, had to be a secretary at Stanford in the registrar's no, office. No surprise. But I like to give her credit, uh, and also Flora Hewlett both worked and supported the company in the early days and, and started drawing a salary very early on. What choice did they have? Yeah. <laughs> they were yeah. married to these guys. Mm -hmm. Well, but they were very the involved. Yeah, and it was in the 30s, exactly. They were very involved, very much felt a part of the company, um, especially Lucille. She did a lot of the, she did the correspondence, she did the books, she <coughs> typed up all the, the marketing letters, you know, she ran errands. 
uh, and then she did the laundry and the cooking and you know so I, I don't want to get off very on, much a, on a woman's partner. rant but yeah. that's pretty amazing yeah. <laughs> you know, very amazing Absolutely so I always amazing. like to mention her yeah but back um, in the 30s what was the neighborhood like because it, it I moved here in the 70s and it was mostly still orchards around here. This was, this neighborhood was called Professorville. Uh, and uh, if you walk a couple blocks over this way, you'll notice that um, the houses uh, are very sort of East Coast looking. So, you know, they recruited a lot of professors from the East Coast from the Ivy League schools. And they came out here and um, kind of brought that architecture with them. So it's funny, there's Victorian houses, there's one house that's kind of federal. And even this house is kind of an East Coast. To me, it looks Cape Cod, it's called shingle style. So it wasn't, there weren't as many full lots as there are now. But it was a middle class neighborhood of professionals, professors. In fact, this house was built by a doctor. Uh, Dr. Spencer in 1905 and in 1918 they divided it, uh, he, he was elderly, they divided it into two apartments. The landlady lived upstairs and they started renting the downstairs. Is that the original wiring up there? So this was electrical? electrical yes, mm -hmm. and it's the original light bulb. So it's the old modern tube wiring. Now the garage was built probably around 1925, a little later, because in 1905 people didn't have cars. cars. We yeah. looked at the insurance maps and it shows up by 1928. Um, so so they, that they, goes better with the wiring, you know what yeah. I mean? The, but, but the they, knob didn't have, and they didn't have lighting. And they didn't have they had a single light bulb. This is the only picture we have of them in the garage. So, so this is what didn't work used. late into the night. Well, maybe they did, but <laughs> they couldn't see very well. This is yeah. a really bad ice cream. <laughs> yeah. this is a, it's a posed picture, as, yeah. as you can see. He has a sport coat on. Okay. And this is one of a series of pictures uh, the archives has from 39. I think they brought someone over to take a couple pictures. And they took a picture of the garage. So if you ever see that famous black and white picture we've right. sent out yeah, a million right, times, right, right, right. I think that was taken at the same time as this. And then they took a, they took a picture of the stove, oddly enough. You know the story. They, they would paint the panels on the, the front of this thing Got to cure the bacon and bake them in the oven. Very, I've done that. Very primitive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Well, actually, there's a trick if you're designing hardware these days. It's very hard to work with surface mount technology without very expensive equipment. But there's a trick you can use with a lot of flux and a toaster oven. And it basically, oh, it's, it's a way solder device on the cheap. Yeah. You know, just don't breathe a lot near it. Exactly. You know, yes, lot, you know, I mean, flux smells great, but it's really bad for yeah, you. Yeah, know. you don't want to think about I try not to eating think about the roast beef afterwards. <laughs> exactly. <but> <laughs> <laughs> so this is, and so we use this picture to, this is a recreation. A lot of people, in fact, someone asked this morning, is, was this their stuff? No, because when they left, they took it all with them and moved on to their next, um, manufacturing facility. <laughs> so so how, how did they decide which, because principally, as I recall, I mean really what they were focusing on was the development of test instruments at that point. Exactly. Right. So how did they decide what the market was and what needed to be done? I mean, there was so much going on at that mm -hmm. juncture of development of you know, FM and exactly. you know, microwaves were just right. discovered and electron tubes. Yeah. Well, so um, Hewlett had been working on a, um, an oscillator while he was up in the lab. So audio oscillators, I'm not an engineer, you know, one of you might be able to give a better explanation, but it, you know, it, it's used in testing sound, it's sound frequencies, right? They existed in the market, they cost four or five hundred dollars, and they were, um, could only test a couple of frequencies. Most of them were push buttons, so you could right. test five, six frequencies. Four or five hundred dollars um, and thirty-eight dollars. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
That would be a half of your salary. Exactly. So Hewitt uh, put a light bulb on the circuit of an oscillator, and that um, accounted for the fluctuations in the current. I mean, he was just kind of experimenting uh, and uh, put like a 10 cent light bulb on it, and it turns out that made it a more stable machine and mm -hmm. able to test more frequencies. So our first product was the, the 200A um, variable audio oscillator. And so you see ours has a dial, <coughs> so you could test more frequencies with it. And what happened was he did that and they kind of showed it to Terman and he was like, hmm. I mean, they had been experimenting with other things, so this is when you hear all the nutty stories about, you know, they designed a harmonica tuner. They used to take odd jobs. They designed a harmonica tuner, uh, an electroshock machine to lose weight, a lot with electronic eyes, an electronic eye to flush the urinals at Stanford. But Terman kind of said, you know, what about this oscillator thing? And, and, you know, I've been told, again, I'm not an engineer, but engineers have told me that it was almost counterintuitive to do that. That it shouldn't, it's one of those things in, in physics or engineering that shouldn't have worked. It's almost like a little magic Wait, putting, what is that? The, putting the light bulb on the circuit. Because like, uh, I don't understand the technical stuff. But just sort of one of those brilliant cool. insights that, that worked, and that's why no one else thought of it, because yeah. it, it shouldn't have. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, they made up a prototype and took it to a show. Uh, and also sent out very basic marketing letters, like type, you know, Lucille typed up the specs and they sent it out, and and they started getting back orders very quickly. And so that's they by December. So this is in the fall. By December, they had some orders, wow. including the Disney order for eight, which was you know a huge order at that time. And so they decided pretty quickly to focus on that, and then on things that sort of went with that. So our second product was a voltmeter, you know, and then on and on and on. But I think they felt it was a field that they could make a contribution to and that was growing so quickly, right, and needed a lot of contribution. So um, that was our business, yeah. you're right, until the 60s. We didn't make our first computer until 66. Right. We should explain why we're here today. <laughs> I, I, go ahead, I think I know, because you're, you're touring Well, bar camp right? is going on yeah. two blocks away or three mm -hmm. blocks away. And uh, bar camp was started two years ago, and this is their birthday, and they have about a thousand people this weekend visiting there. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, Tom and uh, Chris, who are over there, we were at a camp conference up in Seattle last weekend. I was like, bar camp's happening, and it's happening two blocks from where HP started, and mm -hmm. you guys should open the garage. <laughs> and uh, they threw yeah, their uh, PR team into hell for the last uh, few days, right? Because <laughs> yeah. uh, they couldn't, uh, now that I'm in here, I can understand why, you, why they don't You couldn't open it to 800 people. Yeah. yeah. But, no, that's unfortunate. We'd like to, but you're visiting sort of other historic sites, no. but more recent history, right? Yeah. Like where Java was written. And, yeah. Yeah. No, are we? Yeah. Oh, you are. Yeah. Because I read, I read about Bar Camp after I read your blog. Yeah, it's really cool. Well, I've lived here all my life, and I've, I've been to the gate several times because I bring, you know, anytime somebody visits sure. here from yeah. around the world, they want to see the garage, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and we never have been able to get in past that gate. So. I know it's a big temptation. I know it's well, you understand. <laughs> All the <laughs> restrictions and everything, but yeah, um, but yeah it tells a story. This how, how many building. people have been here before uh, out of the outside or inside? Even to the gate. Even to the gate. The 
I've been to the sign outside. Yeah, <laughs> just a few, you know. Yeah. And most most geeks, when I talked to them, even last night at the bar camp, they they haven't been here. Mm -hmm. They they've heard the story, but they haven't been here, and they mm -hmm. don't realize how close it is to Palo Alto, downtown mm -hmm. Palo Alto. Yeah, you can. A lot of people come after dinner. They go to dinner and then they come down and check it out. Yeah. How yeah. did you get your job at HP? Because um, that's I, sort of a cool job. Yeah, corporate I know. So. It's, and it's unusual for, uh, you know, not many corporations have archives. The archives started at HP like it does at a lot of companies. They had an anniversary coming up. So the 50th anniversary was coming up, and they kind of said, uh, we need to do something. <laughs> so the communications, you know, slash PR department actually hired a couple archival consultants to come in and, and uh, build a collection that they could use for anniversary, and then it became so useful they, they kept it. So HP's had in archives for a long time. Uh, Intel just started one. Among high-tech companies, it's, it's more unusual because people look ahead, right? They don't, they don't look behind. And, and Hewlett and Packer were that way. I was telling Chris this morning, um, they never came back to the garage, ever. They, they were completely unsentimental about it. They were dragged back for the 50th anniversary and made it quite clear that um, they weren't that excited about being here. Palo Alto Daily News reporter overheard them muttering to each other and published it. And um, But same thing, right? They they were all about the business. They were very focused. They looked ahead and, um, you know, it's just kind of not in the thing. But how I got my job was, um, so we've had an archives for 12 years. I have a background. I'm not the first archivist, but um, the job came up in a couple years ago, and I have a master's in library science, so most archivists are librarians. Um, and uh, I had worked in other uh, corporate archives here, Apple Computer, which got donated mm -hmm. to Stanford. Um, and uh, Steve Jobs came back. Someone's asked me what I do. I track the business strategy, but I also try to share the history with employees. You know, it's a big source of pride for employees that HP has a, a good, a great history. And uh, and also with the with the community and with customers, you know. So uh, I have a document collection, I have a product collection, I manage this property, and I do a lot of tours for customers and visitors. Yeah. So is there another HP museum that shows the you know the history of the products? It's it's also internal, private. Internal. You know, it's, it's a that, little really different because we are um, a corporation and right. a working corporation, right? And so mostly at this point as opposed to university archives, which is open to the public, ours is, is 4-HP, right. you know. Is yeah. there anything in the Computer History Museum? Yes, they have a very good HP collection. Yeah, yeah and I work I really closely with them. Yeah. And that's kind of one way I get around it. You know, we Could, donate stuff to them. Because when I worked for Intel, Intel had a private museum. Yeah. Then they well, they had a corporate museum yeah. that was yeah. open. But yeah, they uh, the Computer History Museum has a very good collection. And we also donated the deck collection to them when we acquired um, Compact deck had a huge yeah. archives. That all yeah. went to I'm, the I'm computer history. Visual person. So that all went yeah. to the computer history museum, which is better because sure. now it's available for research. Right. Which it would not be if it were still at each Yeah, I mean, I, I collect PDP 11s. Oh, I yeah. have 511s in my basement. Uh, <laughs> do they know that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So David's not. And partner. they're open. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Oh, so anyway, I digress. So. Uh, <laughs> We're all about digressions. So they started, you know, started the company, started the escalator, focused on test and measurement. We're here till um, spring '49. They made about 200 oscillators while they were here, so manufactured everything themselves. And 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 one thing I forgot to mention is because they were doing everything themselves, 
from components that were pretty easily available, you know, baking the paint in the oven. They were so small they couldn't contract anything on anyway. They sold this at a profit for $71.50. So you got a much better machine with significantly lower price than competing. So, so they, they, they were here for until the, the spring of 39? Spring of 40. It's about 40. 18 months. Yeah. And by then they had a couple people working for them, so they needed more room. So they moved to, um, if you know the area on the corner of El Camino and Page Mill, there's an AT&T wireless store. AT&T now, right? Not singular. And behind it is a little store that sells GPS navigation systems. That was our second location. They rented that space. And when they filled that up, then we started building our own our own buildings. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, do you want to know a little bit about the restoration? Sure. Or? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So, because I feel like I'm talking about stuff. <laughs> so, and you can take a look later too. The shed that Hewlett lived in is over here. He so he was a bachelor at the time. He got married about nine months later. But while he was a bachelor, he lived in this little shed over here. Um, kind of interesting. <laughs> and what's really interesting is when we did we did an open house for the community when we finished the restoration in 2005 and we had a couple people come up to us and say they had lived there as late as the 80s. They were still renting this. Which I think is horrible. So, um, you know, housing's tight in Palo Alto. <laughs> And yes. it was the depression. But it's a good still. thing the weather's good because this is not, I'm looking at the walls, yeah. this is not exactly no. the weather type. Uh, it's enclosure. not. Believe me, when it <laughs> rains, it, it all comes in. Uh, but HP bought the property in 2000. So a lot of people think HP's always owned the property, that the Packard family owned the property. No, it was rental property and, and was until 2000. Um, which is one reason the garage is still here, I think, actually just kind of benign neglect. We're very lucky it was used for storage. Yeah. yeah, and we're very lucky that it wasn't you know, they didn't replace the doors or right, right. <laughs> you know, tear it down. Uh, but Are there any restrictions based on the landmark status that would have prohibited the Well, um, not as many as you would think. Although we, one reason HP worked with the owner at the time to get the landmark status because they did want to protect it. And he was very supportive. You know, he, he knew what it was. They had visitors even that, you know, mm -hmm. over the years. Um, but uh, it, you, the, uh, you still could have, I believe, torn it down. I don't think it would have happened though because everyone knows what it is. But anyway, we decided it was time to um, own the property, you know, take responsibility for it. Uh, so HP bought it in 2000. And in 2005, took a couple of years, completed a big restoration. So we own the whole property. Some people think we just own the garage. We own the house and the shed. Um, it was declared a state landmark in '87, uh, actually. And this year, this spring, we just were placed on the National Register of Historic Places. So that's really exciting for us. Um, after we did the, res the restoration, we applied for that. Um, so when we got it, it had been rental property for, you know, 50, 60 years, <laughs> wow. and it was kind of run down. So the garage, um, like I said, had never been touched. The original roof was still on it, if you can believe that. And wow. it had like four layers on top of it, right. but the original shingles were still there. And we actually gave, kept them and gave them away to the retirees, which was kind of fun. But it was ready to fall over. So um, you probably know. Uh, stuff about construction. I learned all this from the architects. But um, 
what, what you would do is maybe put cripple walls or something in the corner to right. reinforce it, but we didn't want to do that because we didn't want to cover up the boards. I mean, you can see from the picture, this is how it was. It was just open, so they inserted this steel, steel frame. frame. Yeah. So that most of the damage was from uh, also termites being California and water. So we um, actually cut the bottom six inches off all the boards, poured that six inch sill, lifted it up, uh, sunk the, um, so they took all the boards off. And if you look on our website, we, we tracked the restoration for the employees and for the press, and it shows, we have pictures of them. They took the boards off, they cataloged them, uh, sunk the frame, and then basically built the garage around this. So this is very solid now and well preserved. And they reinforced up here a bit with, um, we used a little bit of salvage wood. We wanted to do a, 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 a true preservation. The Department of the Interior kind of sets the rules for preservation. Um, and uh, you have to keep 80% of the original materials. So we literally counted the boards and like pulled out the ones that were the worst and uh, replaced those with some old barn wood, uh, but kept you know uh, most of the original materials and then and then put it back together. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the house, you know, uh, is also important, not quite as important to preserve as, as the garage. So this we actually did what's called a rehabilitation. We pretty much had to take it down to the frame and rebuild it. It had been remodeled so many times over the years. And it's a 1905 house. So like a lot of houses in this neighborhood, we had to do the same kind of restoration you would do, you know, new foundation. Right, and right you know, reinforce for earthquake and, yeah, and stuff like years that. It deserves it. Exactly, <laughs> you know. In fact, the house next door, um, after we did ours, did the same thing to theirs. So. Um, but we knew, uh, we, and we didn't have a lot of information about the house. Uh, we had an old oral history with Lucille Packard where she talked a little bit about it uh, and some comments from Hewlett. But we did know that the landlady lived upstairs and that downstairs they had a living room, a dining room, and a kitchen, and they slept in a Murphy bed in the dining room. Because Lucille would say, oh, every night we had to move the dining room table and pull the Murphy bed down, you know. So, and then of course when we got it down to the frame, the architects and the contractor could tell the original floor plan. So we, we use this for small business events. It's actually quite a small house. You, you know how Palo Alto is. What was, it's, it's so expensive now, but you know, this was a nice, this was a doctor's house, a nice middle-class home in the 05, but it actually is quite small, so there's just the three rooms downstairs. We use it for business events. We can't get more than 20 people in there. And then upstairs we have, uh, we've kept the two apartments, so we restored it to the period of 1938-39. And, um, and as I said, we have a tenant slash caretaker living upstairs. So just to have someone on the property and you know, keep relations with the neighbors and everything. Yeah. Keep them up to date on what's happening. How often do you do tours? And is there any, any way to arrange a tour like we, we did with I you do guys? tours for journalists. So we open it up to journalists, and you can just arrange that through corporate PR, you know. Um, and I and like I said, the business events are HP business events. So sometimes customers. Yeah, and see, we live in a neighborhood. It's hilarious. It's, I always have to tell people when we have an event, like, you hear the kids screaming, and one time there was a huge car accident right before the event, right in front of the house, and some people come, there's ambulances, and it's like, you can't control the environment, really. This person's doing a lot of work on their house, so there's construction noise, you know. But, uh, better, actually, you know. It's, it's, I think that 
business would be better served if business people in general lived in the real world with the rest of us. Thank you. I'm going to that next Feel time you're over here. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, to me it's hopefully a site for a little inspiration and yeah, you know, they're working in the garage at night but, and you hear you know, the neighbors, the real, right? real innovation happens at the edge of chaos, right? Just like learning, <laughs> you know. If everything is stayed and, and you know, well done and, and, and set, Nothing interesting happens. Mm -hmm. You can't feel so safe and secure that nothing's going to happen because mm -hmm. then nothing will happen. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm going to tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's pick them up and then you know, shake them a little bit. Yeah. but I do. Out. We do do tours, and we open it up for journalists. A lot of international yeah. journalists come here um, yeah. because it really is. You know, they're here. They're doing a story in Silicon Valley, and where do you start, right? Yeah. So they. They come here, so that that's okay. We get we're we're now that we have someone living here, we're getting a better idea of how many visitors we get. Fifty to a hundred a day, we think. A couple of Saturdays ago, he counted by two o'clock. We had three hundred people come by here. There's a lot of visitors. It's when I'm over here, I usually see at least a dozen people, and I'm only here for a couple hours. So we do get a lot of visitors. I would say at least half of them. So what's the age range that you see of the visitors? All over the place. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, there are a lot of young people. It's I'm funny. Surprised,